0: Welcome, everyone, to this solo episode of Into the Impossible, Superconductor Showdown. Here come maglev bullet trains, ultra-cheap electricity, desktop MRI scanners in every clinic, even small fusion reactors, or not. Since the discovery of superconductors in 1911 by Heike Kamerling Onis, earning him the 1913 Nobel Prize in Physics, it's been the subject of much fascination, speculation, and inquiry. Some of the greatest minds of physics have grappled with how superconductivity works to drive electrical resistance to zero, and two more Nobel Prizes have been won. Alas, superconductivity has required super cold temperatures and super high pressures, making it impractical. Until now. Maybe. Ranga Das and his team at the University of Rochester, in New York, has published a paper on their breakthrough creation of red matter, a room temperature superconductor triggering a firestorm of criticism. Is this a case of Nobel-worthy science, fraud, or folly? Is cancel culture getting in the way? Listen to Professor Keating's in-depth presentation of the controversy and form your own opinion. And please, keep Into the Impossible in your feed by subscribing and following. And for some extra credit, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, or Dr. Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. Where we just broke the 100,000 subscriber milestone. Please help us make the show better by filling out our listener survey linked to in the show notes. And let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one from NYC Lawyering. Dr. Keating is the absolute best among hosts of current science, tech, cosmology, physics, and science-related news. He's wonderful to listen to. He's funny without being snarky. And now, Go beyond the headlines and hype into the science of superconductivity on this solo episode of Into the Impossible with your host, Ryan Keating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Open the pod bay doors, please HAL. Hello, everybody out there interested in the academic media hype complex. Kind of a play on Eisenhower's military industrial complex, except applied to academia. And little known in that speech by Eisenhower was the following quote, and this is actually his farewell speech, but in the military industrial complex portion of the farewell speech, of course, he warned of the the unified entity a whole where military and industry would come together. And some say that his warning was not heeded, but little known or lesser known as his warning about a scientific technological elite, which he also worried about and warned about. He said akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocation, and the power of money is ever present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. And of course, as Carl Sagan said, never has the power of science been uh, so strong. And yet the public's understanding of science been so weak as it is in his day, which is in the late 1990s. So part of the complex, I believe, uh, the academic hype cycle involves Not only money, as Eisenhower was warning about, but also the uh, prospect of fame, attention, and even the Nobel Prize. Like my first book, Losing the Nobel Prize warns about Uh, But today we're going to talk about something that actually has a connection uh, to UC San Diego. And I had hoped that we would have uh, my colleague Jorge Hirsch uh, on this podcast to... Uh, who has been a very, very vocal critic of the claims of the discovery of a truly room temperature, ambient superconductor uh, using lutetium uh, hydride, which has made the rounds for the last few weeks as it is March and physicists gather together in a event called the uh, March Madness for physicists is called the the uh, March Meeting or sometimes it's held in April, the American Physical Society, and um, And it all centers around this article, which I will show uh, in just a minute, about superconductivity and the claim of the absence of electrical resistance exhibited by superconducting materials would have enormous potential for applications if it exists at ambient temperature and pressure conditions. The abstract says, despite decades of intense research efforts, such a state has yet to be realized. At ambient pressures, cuprates, which is the previous class of high-temperature superconducting record holders. These cuprates are material class exhibiting superconductivity up to about uh, temperatures up to 133 Kelvin. Um, And so the precomposition they claim over the past decade has led to new materials which can have interesting behaviors, including one that they're reporting here in this Nature paper, luteum hydride with a maximum critical temperature where it starts to become a superconductor or stops as you're cooling it down of 294 Kelvin. Which is uh, below, which is which is effectively room temperature, at 10 kilobars, which is a amount of pressure that is superconductivity at room temperature and near ambient pressure, and that's important because previously the same group more or less reported a discovery that required tremendous pressure, much higher pressure, and so they go through the evidence that they've obtained this behavior, and I'm going to go through their paper. Um, and uh, with help from one of our graduate students here, Bryce Bixler, has put together this presentation and Lucas um, who's also assisted me putting together some slides for your reference. So let me just tell you, though, cut to the chase and some to some extent, which is that um, these results are highly controversial. And it's not the first time that this group has come up with highly controversial concerns about uh, over their research. And in fact, as I said, there was a retraction of a previous um, result so retraction note this is published in september 2022 so this is just a few months ago about six months ago they retracted the room temperature superconductivity in a carbonaceous sulfur hydride the editors of nature wished to retract this paper following publications questions were raised regarding the manner in which the data in this paper have been processed and analyzed which the authors and nature have been working to resolve we have now established that some key data processing steps namely the background subtractions applied to the raw data used to generate the plots in trigger 2a use a non-standard user-defined procedure i don't know exactly what that means but uh, all authors disagree with this decision An earlier version of this note stated that not all authors expressed their opinions, but the editors have since been contacted by the missing authors. So they went to the authors, they made sure, as you do when you publish the paper, that they all agree with the findings of the paper. So what's going on here? Well, the discovery was basically claimed to be uh, really junk conclusions in some sense by my colleague, Professor Jorge Hirsch here at UC San Diego. Now, Jorge Hirsch himself is also a controversial character, and I hope to have him on to discuss this uh, today, but it was not to be. And then the complaints about Diaz by Jorge Hirsch here at UCSD became so persistent and strident that other people in the field circulated a letter complaining about the decades of disruptive behavior by Dr. Hirsch. He didn't really back down. Um there are other things that are kind of interesting, peculiar, uh, that we'll get into, including um, intellectual property and patents and um, financial backing, or perhaps the lack thereof. So I'm going to go through some slides that my students uh, have prepared, and I think it'll kind of set the stage for why this is so important. Well, first of all, what is a superconductor? superconductor is a material that conducts electrical current with virtually no resistance. And certain things occur when those uh, when this behavior is manifest, including things that can be tested experimentally in the laboratory and used to verify whether or not true superconductivity has actually taken place. Superconducting uh, f- materials are inherently quantum systems. So typically, quantum systems are destroyed by, they're very delicate and they're destroyed by decoherence and effects that occur when there's an interaction between ambient conditions, say the laboratory's temperature, other effects like pressure, magnetic fields, and otherwise. So it's very difficult to get a room temperature superconductor as it is to get a purely quantum state of something otherwise non-classical in its behavior. And actually, curiously, it's Discovery of the theory behind it, so-called BCS theory, was the C in BCS theory, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer. The C was my advanced quantum mechanics professor at Brown University, Leon Cooper. Put a picture of him here. And Leon came up with this, apparently, according to my friend Stefan Alexander, past guest, many-time past guest on the podcast. He came up with it while riding the A train you know, in New York City in 1957 or so. And they won the Nobel Prize a year or two after I was born. Uh, For this, And the so-called key phenomena are so-called Cooper pairs, which are pairs of electrons, which you'd normally think would be repelling each other, but they're bound together because of interaction with the lattice uh, uh, quasi-particles called phonons. And we'll have some more to say about that later on, and also in our interview with Felix Flicker, uh, which will also cover the announcement of this room temperature superconductivity phenomenon, because he was actually there at this press conference. Another thing that happens uh, is the so-called Meisner effect, which is that the magnetic fields become zero within the material. And they're restricted to tiny little vortices called fluxons, uh, and these can be obtained at uh, temperatures... Uh, considered to be you know by by most people high temperature superconductivity is uh, above 77 kelvin and that's the temperature which nitrogen boils and it's a common cheap relatively cheap material that's easily available and is in fact used to uh, cool down many uh, superconducting materials and even trains and other um, technology and the co- coils at the large hadron collider and cern and um, in europe but these uh, these phenomena are not manifest unless there is a very low temperature, it's 321 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, which means it's 400 degrees Fahrenheit below room temperature almost. So these are very cold, even though they're much, much warmer than the original uh, superconducting um, properties of the original superconductors found by Cameron Linnons back in the early 1900s when he became the first to liquefy the element, the uh, liquefy the element hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, then he put different materials in it, measured the resistance, and it happened to be that lead was uh, demonstrating zero electrical resistance when it was cooled to liquid nitrogen, which means that it transitions from an ordinary metal with finite resistance and therefore heating when you pass a current through it to zero resistance and no heating when you pass current through it once it goes below about 11 Kelvin in the case of lead. And then since then, many, many materials were discovered, different temperatures, always trying to get higher and higher in a quest to get to room temperature superconductivity, because then you wouldn't even need liquid nitrogen, which though cheaper compared to liquid helium, liquid helium is about the cost of a decent bottle of wine or you know a liter of wine is about the same as a liter of helium liquid helium and liquid nitrogen is about the cost of a fine you know liter of coke or some other soda you know premium cola not the kind i used to be given as a kit. so these um, materials are you know not free they're expensive you know compared to room temperature where you need no cooling mechanism liquid or otherwise to cool them down So there's considered to be two types of superconductors, so-called type one, type two, very creative. Uh, And they're really of interest to physicists primarily and has to do with the way that the phase of the material changes upon cooling down at a so-called critical temperature. And it's not as important for us to get into, except the fact that it does allow you, once you claim superconductivity, the uh, fellow physicists, scientists will want to know what kind of superconductivity is it. Is it of a type 1 superconductor or a type 2 superconductor? And they really do differ only, you know, by the behavior of magnetic field penetration. In typical superconductors that are used, the original ones like lead and so forth are pure, uh, and they're usually type 1. There is complete exclusion of magnetic field, even when embedded in a strong external field, as shown here in blue. There'll be no... Uh, there'll be no magnetic field penetration now if you then allow the magnetic field to penetrate either by um uh, because of the fact that you're using a type 2 superconductor some of the flux can penetrate in um, if you're not well below the critical temperature um they'll all behave in that they'll allow magnetic field to penetrate once you're above this critical temperature they become just like a normal metal the metals don't screen magnetic fields the way they screen electric fields and that's a hallmark of superconductors that we can use to then determine if the claims are actually accurate. Because if they're superconductors, they should exhibit these behaviors. And then we can ask the question, well, how disputed are these behaviors? The other things that can happen to various types of superconductors, type 2 superconductors can be frozen um, and you can actually trap a magnetic field inside of them because as I said before, they allow the penetration of a field within them unlike a type 1 superconductor. So you can pin them and get them uh, frozen in place and these vortices are effectively behaving allowing them this thing to have a permanent magnetic field once you cool it down, it'll have some ambient field and that's why they become uh, they exhibit this levitation effect where if you cool down a superconductor below its critical temperature, it's in the earth's field and it will trap some magnetic field within it. And then it will then levitate above an ordinary static room temperature, room pressure, um, permanent, uh, permanent magnet. And these could be these high magnetic field objects that you can buy on Amazon, these uh, very high fields or rare earth element magnets or just an electromagnet. And so they could be used for levitation, which would allow almost frictionless tra- travel of trains and other um, transportation. Again, the, uh, the the history of superconductivity really began because of the history of cryogenic fluids. So in 1908, Cameron Ons, who's a Dutch physicist, um, had had the ability, because of something called the Hampson-Linde cycle, uh, that, and not the André-Linde cycle, which we'll be talking with Professor Linde about inflation, the multiverse, it's coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. So, uh, Cameron Ohms, he used this uh, advancements in cryogenic technology to liquefy helium. And he actually cooled it way below its uh, ambient pressure boiling point of 4.2 Kelvin. So, then he dunked different things in it. And I said lead before, I meant mercury. So, he put mercury wire in it, measured the voltage versus current relationship, and found that it behaved as if it were obeying Ohm's law, but with a zero amount of resistance. So, it was really fascinating. And of course, this attracted a lot of attention that people wanted to understand how it was actually occurring. And uh, some of the greatest minds in history tried to grapple with it, including Einstein, Feynman, and most were unsuccessful. And despite the tremendous advancements in sort of the classical theory of how these things would behave, it really took the three gentlemen at the bottom, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer, and I recognize Leon Cooper anywhere, he's the guy in the middle um they discovered in 1957 the effect that allowed a lattice material to create the bonding between otherwise repulsive electronic electron pairs and so that was that was a critical discovery and this is theoretical in nature and then was applied to other types of superconductors by then the race was on to get higher and higher temperatures because it was known for a long time that you could get a tremendous number of applications from superconductivity if applied to technological applications. And so the race was on to do um, higher and higher temperatures because it's very inconvenient to use liquid helium all the time. It's very expensive. So in the 1980s, um, two scientists, George Bednorz and Karl Muller, discovered that if you took this type of material that you uses, yttrium, barium, copper, and uh, copper oxide, that you could get them to become uh, superconducting at temperatures higher than um, uh, than 4.2 Kelvin. So these were some of the first so-called higher temperature superconductors, not very high, it's only 10 times higher than the temperature of interstellar space and the cosmic microwave background temperature. But nevertheless, this material allowed them, the year after they won a Nobel Prize, which is very rare, it's one of the first ones that actually adhered to, that actually adhered to what Alfred Nobel stipulated in his will, as I point out, losing the Nobel Prize that he wanted the Nobel Prize to go to somebody who'd made a discovery or an invention in the preceding year. Unlike, say, the Higgs boson, which was awarded 40-plus years, maybe closer to 50 years after the prediction, by Higgs, Zenglard, Hagen, um, and uh, my quantum mechanics group theory teacher, Professor Jerry Goralnik. So, uh, this was actually perfectly suited Nobel Prize to the intent of Alfred Nobel, and you know how I railed on about that, I won't go on much further, except to say that a discovery, just as the discovery of a higher temperature, you know, less than 10 times higher temperature, um, revolutionized things so much that they were awarded a Nobel Prize, so too would another factor of 10 in temperature, in Kelvin scale at least, almost, would that lead to a Nobel Prize? Everybody believes that if we can find a high-temperature superconductor, that whoever does that will win a Nobel Prize. So, inspired by their work, um, you know, researchers in Houston and Alabama um, did a, an experiment on this yittrium, uh, copper yttrium uh, uh, barium oxide, which is called Yibico. It has a superconducting temperature of 93 Kelvin, which is much higher than the temperature of liquid nitrogen. So this is very easy to cool down below its critical temperature. And then you get all the cool uses of superconductivity. And so this is less than a year after the Nobel Prize was awarded. And then you could produce commercially this material. You could use it in wires. You could use it as as a uh, levitation mechanism, as I've said. Uh, but it doesn't have quite as many uses as, say, a pure, you know, elemental wire piece of uh, mercury or or copper even. Sorry, copper doesn't superconduct. Uh, aluminum uh, and, and so forth. These are not as useful because you can't really cause them to carry, like, very large currents. They have a so-called critical current. And that's another hallmark that we're going to use to assess and appraise the validity of a claim of high-temperature superconductivity. What is its critical temperature? What is its critical current? What is its critical magnetic field? What type of phase transition is it? Those are all hallmarks that have to be passed by any reasonable claim of superconducting phenomena. So many of these new ones use so-called cuprates, rates. Uh, and prior to this... Um, Prior to this discovery by, uh announcement by the Diaz Group, the uh, record holder was um, was this lanthanum uh, decahydride, decahydride, it must be, lanthanum decahydride, so that's 10 hydrogens and lanthanum. It's not that very complicated material, and it doesn't have a cuprate. Um, and it Superconducts, uh, you know, at a frosty temperature, but a temperature that I've enjoyed many, many times at the South Pole and elsewhere, negative twenty-three Celsius. It's not that, not that bad, um, speaking from experience. Uh, but it requires an incredible amount of pressure, one hundred and fifty gigapascals. Uh, the, you know, the pressure that um, would be basically prohibitive to ever construct. Now you'll hear in my conversation with Felix Flicker, which is coming up on his wonderful new book, The Magic of Physics. uh, You'll hear more about why this is uh, so crucial to have this room pressure, ambient pressure behavior. And that's what's claimed with these high temperature superconductors that we're going to turn. So here's a current nature paper, an evidence of near ambient superconductivity in an N-doped lutetium hydride. So, this is not a copper one. The, the last author is actually the lead PI of this project. And so, it's, um, it's not alphabetical either. So, again, this is a little bit more technical. Um, when you have bound pairs of electrons called Cooper pairs, they have a precursor property, which is the phase transition below a critical temperature. And that's how you recognize that they've gone from normal, you know, above zero resistance, not non zero resistance, to true zero resistance. There are other phenomena, other properties, including the heat capacity. How much um, uh, temperature rise do you do you get in a material for a given amount of energy injected into it? Um, that will have a discontinuity. The Meissner effect I already talked about, which is the magnetic field expulsion, and also you can measure the susceptibility, which is the amount of of um, applied magnetic field. Is required to get a produced magnetic field in a material. And that has this crucial property that you'll actually get a negative sign. So you get you apply a strong magnetic field to a true superconductor, it will have an uh, opposite, it will generate an opposite or diamagnetic magnetic magnetization. And this will occur at a critical, they'll also exhibit a critical magnetic field above which you will not see superconductivity. It breaks down. There's also the critical temperature so we use these in our detectors for the simons array in the simons observatory here's one from my former graduate student who's now a postdoc at uc berkeley lindsay lowry and it shows this uh, change in resistance of our transition edge superconducting detectors these are our bolometers that we use to measure the faint <coughs> cmb signal and you see it drops from some finite resistance and uh, about one ohm to zero and it does so over very very narrow temperature range it looks nearly vertical but it's not quite vertical Uh, And we use that intermediate region where it's red basically as a thermometer. So when there's uh, a small change in um, temperature because the volumeter is heating up because it's seeing a slightly higher patch of temperature on the sky because the cosmic background radiation's polarization is brighter there you'll see this behavior and it will change and rise or raise or lower its, its resistance and so we use it as a almost perfect noiseless thermometer and when it goes below the critical temperature it's, uh, it's almost useless now it's shown here as having a finite resistance of 0.2 ohms but that's all that 0.2 ohms is all from uh, electrical resistance that's not associated with the superconductor so that's like other copper wire we have to get this out of the cryostat somehow and you see that this is way below room temperature this is almost at absolute zero so there's finite um, ordinary wire, like copper wire and some copper um, and uh, aluminum alloys and stuff. So we, we do use it um, uh, in all of our astrophysics sensors, and many sensors will be using this in the years to come. So you see, again, we've got a bunch of different properties. You claim you have a new superconductor. Great. Let's test it out. Let's see if it first meets the definition. Does it superconduct? Zero electrical resistance. Does it have a heat capacity discontinuity? We can measure that. Does it exhibit the Meissner effect? Does it expel magnetic fields? Does it have a magnetic susceptibility that's negative, indicative of diamagnetism? Does it have a critical magnetic field? And does it have a critical temperature dependence on the external magnetic field? So I described already this property of type 1 and type 2 there's a critical temperature below which all fields are expelled in a type one type two there can be flux within it and that's just kind of a diagram taken from uh wikipedia the source of all scientific knowledge now here's an interesting plot that uh bryce collected it shows all these different you know chemistry was my nightmare subject I, i never really uh was, uh, was quite comfortable with chemistry in, in high school or college. So forgive me if I mangle these names, but you see the temperature scale and you see the different years in which these uh, superconductors were discovered. Starting way on the left, the discovery in mercury and then lead uh, was slightly um, higher critical temperature. These are all at ambient pressure, um, except for the one that's marked uh, lanthanum decahydride or LACH 10. Uh, which require this huge pressure and does superconduct at these extremely high temperatures, um, uh, pr- extremely high pressures, and also extremely high temperatures. We're getting up to room temperature, shown as about 300 Kelvin, is the classical accepted definition of it. So, starting at the lower left corner, going up to the right, temperature is increasing and um and the year is increasing for some of these things but you really sort of hit the wall um and in even in the year 2000 so this is almost a hundred years after its discovery uh, more than 100 years after discovery superconductivity and the green dots are sort of petering out they're really not able to get much higher up in uh in superconducting temperature um, until, uh, with ordinary materials, like just simple, um, you know, divalent or, you know, commonly available, um, compounds. Then in 1987, you see the, uh, discovered these yttrium barium copper oxides. So you see those skyrocket up about 90, hundred Kelvin. The 1986 ones are measured. The first high temperature superconductor, the so-called, it was above the temperature of the niobium germanium compound, and that led to the Nobel Prize, as I mentioned before, and then it kind of skyrockets up, and then it plateaus again, and then you start requiring higher and higher pressures. Now, it's not exactly clear to me why the pressure comes into play so much, except for the fact that this is a mystery to my theoretical condensed matter colleagues, like Professor Jorge Hirsch, which is why I wanted to have him on the show today. So you do need higher pressure and uh, for some of these things to really start to interact and they don't understand why or exactly why some people have ideas as to why high pressure comes into play. And I asked Felix Flicker about this and, and it's still an up, uh, open debate. Why is this the case? so the claim in this current paper ds's team is that they found a superconducting lithium nitrogen hydrogen compound with a critical temperature of 294 kelvin so that's like 12 degrees below room temperature you know it's like 60 degrees 65 degrees fahrenheit they're calling this near ambient pressure 10 kilobars not that high and they show the behavior of the different uh the compound as they're changing the pressure they put it inside of a a cell a pressure cell where they can increase the pressure compressing it and then they're running AC and DC currents through it. And they're also checking its magnetic field when they switch the magnetic field or they keep it constant. And that's what they're doing. And they're, they're showing that it, they're claiming that it does satisfy these different properties no resistance, it has the proper magnetic diamagnetism. It has heat ca- capacity discontinuity, and it reduces the critical temperature when you have a magnetic field. So that that also isn't super practical. You have to have a huge magnet to make it lower its temperature. But, but anyway, it's satisfying. The claim is that satisfying all these properties that make it a classical superconductor. Here's their setup. This is where it gets really cool. They put it inside what's called a diamond anvil cell, where they have this huge capacity for pressure and squishing this material. But it doesn't have to be squished all that much. They're able to put in um, with ordinary metal, platinum, non-superconducting metal foil probes, and you see those there. And they compress it uh, in the cell that also has diamond uh, powder in it uh, for suspension and mechanical purposes. And then they're measuring out what's called a four-point measurement. They're using two uh, leads to measure voltage and another two to measure current. So the voltage is measured across the sample and the current is measured through the sample and then they can change the temperature they can heat up the sample um and they uh, can also measure the temperature using uh, a thermos uh, uh, basically a thermo a thermometer called the thermocouple. so they go through they pressurize it they measure the temperature at different pressures they put this odd sample in and they have pictures of it here it is so it's this little chunk and there you see the platinum electrodes coming in on the left, and then it's showing its resistance. Boom! It looks clear as day. I mean, it's clearly superconducting. It's going to zero resistance. The pressure is 10 kilobars in one case, 16 kilobars, and then as a function of t- the temperature is lowering as you get to higher and higher pressures. So that's actually kind of the opposite of what you might want. You'd, you'd or what you know. So this is behaving in a in a very positive way that the critical temperature is getting uh, is going up as you reduce the pressure which is kind of cool because you'd like it to be zero critical you'd like the temperature that it transitions to zero resistance to be to be room temperature or even higher than room temperature if you're using it in the desert or something to conduct electricity from giant solar panels or solar um, water heater generators, steam turbines uh, you'd like that to be maybe slightly higher than room temperature maybe 310 kelvin and you'd like it to be zero kilobar. You'd like to not have to have carry around a diamond anvil uh, press around with you at all points. So uh, they do this, they show it's superconducting, zero resistance, and then they are measuring as a function of pressure on the right, it's behavior. Now, another topic is the specific heat, how much, um, uh, how much heat is stored for a given change in temperature how much energy is stored uh, this behaves properly it exhibits a characteristic specific heat discontinuity and it's um, ohm's law changes from linear which is ohm's law v equals i times r to non-linear when it gets below the critical temperature so far so good they do magnetization measurements they measure that is um uh, in a uh, a vibrating sample magnetometer where they're actually moving it to generate a changing AC, alternating current magnetic field, um, moving it back and forth, moving it up and down, uh, and then also having a pickup coil to measure the resulting magnetic field. And they see as they do this what the, um, what the behavior is like. And this is where the controversial behavior comes in, according to my colleague, Jorge Hirsch, claims that um, the background subtraction technique that they're using is problematic and we'll get to some of that in just a bit they measure the dc magnetization the ac magnetization when well, there's zero field and field cooling conditions those are uh, technical um uh, disco- uh technical properties uh they measure the onset of magnetization they see the magnetization changes in response to sample pressure this is all great now, what does this look like well they don't know exactly what it is um statistically this luteinium Um, hydro nitride um, this has uh, been made by taking this foil of luteinium which i don't know where you can get them but i'm sure they can get you some and maybe even sell you some and it's uh made by heating it in a a hydrogen atomic or sorry molecular hydrogen molecular nitrogen gas mixture up to 63 celsius which is you know toasty but not crazy high temperature and under high pressure that's just to make it Uh, They characterize it using what's called Raman spectroscopy, which is a type of, similar to, like, fluorescence spectroscopy. They don't know exactly the composition or how much of these different, they're called stoichiometric relationships. Uh, Again, I failed chemistry. No, I didn't fail chemistry, but uh, it's been a while, decades since I had chemistry. Um, And now we'll get to some of the, so it it checks all the boxes, okay? It's making uh, zero resistance. It's having magnetic susceptibility as a diamagnet. It's having a critical temperature behavior. It has a critical field behavior. It has a um, otherwise, you know, completely, completely. Uh, I don't want to say classical, but it has a completely um, objectively well-behaved magnetic field or uh, uh, superconducting properties. So, what is the controversy about? It seems like they're you know ticking all the boxes. A lot of this comes down to who do you trust? Do you trust the experimentalist? Um, or is there a reason to maybe suspect them? Is there something wrong with what they're doing? Um, and so I'm going to take you through some of the controversy. Again, it's too bad my colleague decided not to be here for this, but maybe I'll get him some other time. Um, and uh, so let's go through some of the complaints about this particular finding. There was a response, and we'll have this in the show notes down below. That the discovery of superconductivity, uh, this is by Dirk van den Marl and Jorge Hirsch. Uh, and they talk about the discovery of room temperature superconductivity for carbonaceous sulfur hydride under high pressure. This is a different type of material. It's not the lutetium. And they measure uh, this, and they claim this, uh, but then they say the susceptibility, again, this is getting into the magnetic susceptibility, the background, they claim, the authors, DS et al., the background signal determined from a non-superconducting sample has been subtracted from the data. From a thorough analysis, we show the data are incompatible with the notion that the susceptibility data are obtained from the measured voltage, using a background connection, correction. On the other hand, the data are compatible with the reverse procedure, namely the measured voltage is obtained by adding a background signal containing noise to what was reported as a background-corrected susceptibility. For all six of the reported pressures, our analysis leads to the conclusion like that 1. The reported background-corrected susceptibility data are pathological. 2. They were not obtained by the method described in the paper, nor by any one of the alternative three methods that were subsequently provided by the authors, and 3. The measured voltage data are not raw data. So it's basically alleging uh, improper conduct, uh, laboratory conducts perhaps, Uh, but it gets worse in some sense or better in some sense. Um, So uh, there was another manuscript that this one was uh, submitted uh, by just by Jorge Hirsch. It was published uh, and this is called uh, on the room temperature superconductivity of carbonaceous sulfur hydride. Um, here I provide an analysis of the underlying data. The analysis calls into question the generally accepted view that carbonaceous sulfur hydride is a room-temperature superconductor, and he goes through in, in great detail what is the notion of what they claim to have detected. Um, now, this fell into a lot of uh, a lot of attention. So this was actually um, reported in uh, in all the popular press. And it was reported at this meeting in uh, the so-called March meeting of the American Physical Society. The plot kind of thickened after this. Um, and this is from a, a science paper in the Journal Science Science uh, about the treatment of Jorge Hirsch after he was banned from publishing in what's called the Archive, which is the largest repository of scientific and exchange of scientific documents in the world right now. It's an open source um, open access system to publish preprints before they get accepted under peer review. Sometimes they're not accepted under peer review. Okay, so they banned him. They banned Jorge Hirsch, a theoretical physicist at UCSD, from posting papers for six months. And he, Jorge is quoted as saying, the ban is very unfair. I can't work if I can't publish papers. Well, he's not really pub—not free to publish papers. You just can't put them on archive. But anyway, now, uh, Southern scientists' archives ban and removal of papers amounted to stifling scientific debate. And here they quote my other colleagues here at UCSD, Nigel Goldenfeld, Diana Rovas, another physicist, agreed, squelching what is essentially a purely scientific exchange, even one where the respective parties engage in some distasteful accusations is highly problematic. There are no papers, and according to the archives' administrators, there are no papers in this whole chain that are rejected because we do not like the scientific content says uh, Ralph Lugiers, a physicist at the University of Amsterdam, who is the preprint server's board chair. People's emotions became too affected. They got acrimonious. Then it goes on to describe uh, what the archive is all about, how many papers are accepted, uh, and how it's voluntarily moderated by people that um, there's legitimate scientific research, interest to in the community. Papers that don't appear to be scientifically sound or use unprofessional language can be rejected review boards, then manage appeals. Rejections are rare, perhaps 1% of submissions, said Stein Sigurdsson, their executive director. If we allow this stuff, uh, all this stuff, he says, uh, Paul Finley says, rather, a uh, Finley, a theoretical physicist at the University of Oxford and advisory committee, if we allow this stuff, what's the difference between the archive and Twitter? Indeed. So uh, moderators believe that Jorge Hirsch here at UCSD crossed the line in papers critiquing the October 2020 Nature publication by Team by Ranga diaz a physicist at the University of Rochester. The paper reporting the discovery of a hydrogen-containing material under intense pressure superconducts at near room temperature was hailed as a culmination of a century-long quest, uh, as I said before. Now, then it got really interesting. Hirsch, did, um, Hirsch asked Diaz for the raw data. He said Diaz rebuffed him repeatedly. Eventually, Hirsch did receive some data from one of DS's co-authors, and that's kind of uh, one of the sticking points. And in August 2021, Hirsch submitted his own analysis to both the Archive and Physica C. The paper was titled, On the AC Magnetic Susceptibility of a Room-Temperature Superconductor, Anatomy of a Probable Scientific Fraud. So, pretty harsh words. After publishing it online, Physica C removed the article because it contained data published without the original team's permission. And then the archive took it down in December. Then, the plot thickens, 2021, Diaz and one of his collaborators, Askan Salamat, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, posted a response to Hirsch's criticisms, included some of their raw data. And in December, Hirsch submitted two papers analyzing those raw data and followed up with three more papers, all of them responses to work by Diaz and his colleagues. They blocked all five, uh, archived archive did. Hirsch said posting multiple submissions has also been delayed for weeks or more, and papers were taken down even after they were posted. Last week, the paper, the site archive site, also removed a paper from Diaz in Salamat due to inflammatory content and unprofessional language. So this is this is wild. This. Is happening in theoretical and experimental condensed matter physics. Now, Hirsch, to his credit, defended DS and Salomon's paper in an effort in an email to their administrators that prevents scientific arguments the community should be able to judge in their merits, rather than prevented by doing so by your arbitrary self-righteous decorum standards. They've been invited to modify the offending language and resubmit it, and a modified version of Hirsch's papers on which he's the second offer has been reposted. Modification is not likely to happen with Hirsch's other offending papers, in which he was the first or only author. Sigurdsson says he's uh, unable to discuss the case, but bans can occur for other reasons. We don't want to be flooded by separate comments and single papers. Our moderators are a noise suppression machine, he says. Other physicists worry moderators are making arbitrary judgments, and we don't know what those prejudices might be. According to Brian Josephson, who I hope to get on the podcast someday, a Nobel Prize winner, also controversial in his own right, um, uh, creator inventor of the Josephson junction, Josephson effect, which we use in our squid amplifiers. This new discovery is now in a room, uh, ambient pressure as well, but it's the same team. And to add to that, kind of uh, some of the questions are, you know, perhaps it is the fact that Diaz um, has started this company, Unearthly Materials. And he has already made, according to um, uh, some of the claims and articles and uh, TechCrunch and elsewhere, because the new luteum-based material is superconducting at much lower pressures, many other research groups will attempt to reproduce the experiment. Dr. Diaz said he wants to provide a more precise recipe on how to make the compound and share samples, but intellectual property issues need to be resolved first. He founded a company, Unearthly Materials, that plans to turn the research into profits. And... Allegedly, he is—he uh, claimed that uh, he had obtained $20 million in funding. They made claims that could later not be verified. So TechCrunch reports uh, just last week, unearthly materials claimed to have big-name investors, but they weren't all on board. Star claims is on the cusp of the superconductor breakthrough, despite their questionable scientific record. I'll have links to that as well. So they want to capitalize on their research. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, though its it's curious as to whether or not he um, or his company can actually make a lot of money, you patent something like this. Um, you know, it's a material. Can you really own a material? Uh, if there's something proprietary about it that no one else could figure out, should you, pro- should you, um, you know, put a patent on something that could benefit the whole planet? Should you try to leverage it to make money? And so this author of this TechCrunch article, Tim DeChant, which we linked to, uh, talks about, uh, Talks about the a video, which was uh, stumbled upon by the author, of a virtual talk that Diaz gave to scientific society and Sri Lankan investors in a university, which he claims to have raised a million-dollar seed round and $20 million Series A for unearthly materials. And you'll know that I talked to uh, none other than um, David Friedberg, co-host of the uh, All In podcast, and and David said he'd give his right arm for a room temperature superconductivity. So David's arm is at stake here, um, and it's really not clear if he'll have to give it up. But some of the other investors that were on site, according to Diaz, the seed round featured Union Square Ventures, um, the the founder of Spotify, Daniel Ek, Ek, um, and uh, and then the Series A round apparently included none other than Sam Altman, OpenAI's uh, uh, leader. So this is an incredibly, you know, complex, difficult, and uh, tangled superconducting web. Trying to figure it all out is not easy, but it does highlight this notion that media, academia, are in collaboration, just as the military and uh, industry are in collaboration. Is it dangerous? Can it lead to um, abuses or? maybe incentivize fraud in some cases, perhaps. And there's a lot at stake. And it's interesting to note that these things have to do with one of our greatest challenges, climate change, right? Uh, one of the greatest challenges that we're facing is you know, the losses due to energy transportation due to the fact that we use actual conductive materials that have non-vanishing resistance. They're ordinary materials. So they lose, copper loses 20 to 30% of the energy that it's transporting. So that's a huge hit in efficiency. So we're going to change all that, reducing the need at room temperature to just have loss due to heat from the copper wires that are used for transmission lines. We'd also be able to utilize them, as I said before, for transportation, near frictionless, or just near air resistance, and many, many other scientific applications. Medicine and otherwise, we wouldn't need these huge cryogenic. Have you ever had an NMR, MRI, as we now call it? Uh, you've undoubtedly heard the, the incredible, you know, sound of the cooler and that's actually used in the magnets. Um, those are superconductors. They need to be cooled to liquid helium, and liquid nitrogen uh, is not sufficient to generate the uh, temperatures of yttrium barium copper oxide. Uh, cannot produce the magnetic fields. You need to image, say, the brain or something. So you could actually reduce that. That would benefit the world in a way that Alfred Nobel clearly intended. So Nobel Prize is at stake. Attention for the universities are at stake. Climate change is at stake. You could have room temperature supercomputing devices using superconductors. So quantum computers operating the qubits that are used are like these Joseph junctions. Uh, again, I hope to get Brian Joe I've been in contact with him. Hopefully he'll come on. So there's a tremendous amount at stake, prestige, money, fame, attention, and so much more makes it such an interesting topic for me to look at as an outsider, just a physics-interested, nerdy outsider, but uh, somebody who um, you know has no direct stake in this, but as an interested party, I think we can all get behind the fact that these announcements and the vetting of them and the acrimony and that science, people think scientists are just... happy-go-lucky types are just curious and passionate and they never have any bad signs we're just you know stroking our beards and thinking about the universe or non-existent beards in some cases so where do we go from here well i'll continue to pay attention to this because as i said i'm incredibly interested in it even as a lay person in this field although i do use superconductors i use cryogenics and but i'm fascinated with it so i'll endeavor to keep you abreast of this but i'll also bring into account more topics, as I talked about in a video at the end of December last year with uh, Professor Charles Seif, who's a journalism professor, former math physics um, aficionado himself. We talked about the discovery of, of fusion by uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, uh, announced at the end of last year as a breakthrough in in power and and hope for you know green energy, too cheap to meter. So part of my mission, bring you. The best and brightest in the universe, and sometimes unveil the messy side of being a scientist. It's not all pretty, and I don't want to make people feel the impression that being a scientist is all just everybody just contemplating the universe and how it can benefit the human condition. It's not like that. Uh, but hopefully, we'll explore more together. And let me know what you think about this video. Uh, leave a thumbs up. Leave a comment. Even better, and a thumbs up. Leave a thumbs down. Uh, that also helps. You wouldn't believe it. Leave a thumbs down, but tell me what you'd like me to improve about the presentation, topics, other things. If you'd like more of these deep dives, kind of like an office hours, uh, and uh, let me know what you think. Okay. Till next time.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible. Keep in touch by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at... Keating.com slash list and if you've got a .edu domain we'll send you the next best thing to a room temperature superconductor a piece of an extraterrestrial object in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey linked to in the show notes and thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube please keep it growing by following and subscribing Don't forget to go look at the video of this episode on the YouTube channel to see the slides. Remember, always be curious.